Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, to this American economy, and she doesn't mince words about it, she calls it transitory and fragile. Frances Donald joins us with Manulife, exceptionally good at working out Y equals C plus I plus G plus whatever the export dynamic is. Uh, how tough is it right now to gain Q4 and Q1 of next year, Francis? Probably tougher than it's been in many, many years. And that's because when we look at 2022, it does look as though growth and inflation are going to decelerate quite materially, but we have to get there first. And over the next three to four months, we're facing a host of uncertainties. Mm. How steep will China's decline will be? Will we see policy miscommunications, too much tightening from the Fed? And when will those supply chains unwind? And yet underlying the surface, all of these risks seem a lot better priced than they were even six months ago. And that's why we're struggling here with the levels looking not so great, but the expectations better aligned to them. And that's why I think we could actually get a bit of a reprieve in this market sentiment in the next three to four months until we hit a more difficult 2022. How do you respond to the pendulum of stagflation? Well, stagflation, of course, we're not exactly in stagflation, but what became very clear over the course of the summer is that we were going to see upside surprises to inflation and downside surprises to growth. The challenge is that we have yet to see, or we, we didn't really see the narrative focusing on the idea that high prices were actually far less about inflation than they were about what they were going to do to the demand side of the economy. Stagflationary pressures are about how they slow growth even though you might have good underlying fundamentals underneath them. Some of the examples of that is U.S. housing. Prices are skyrocketing, but U.S. housing dragged on growth in the second quarter. We could be seeing much stronger manufacturing activity, but we don't have sufficient supply. And I think we've been too dismissive that just because this downside risks are coming from the supply side, they don't matter. They absolutely do, and they will continue to restrain just how fast this reopening can really be. Francis, how do they matter to this bond market? Well, this is the issue is that there's been a lot of, I think, misunderstanding that when we have really high inflation, the Fed will respond to it. The Fed cannot, and in my opinion, will not respond to supply side inflationary shocks. The Fed can hike all it wants. It's going to caper super aggressively. It's not going to materialize with semiconductors out of Taiwan. The Fed cannot respond to this type of inflation pressure. And that's why if you want to get the Fed call right, What I'm trying to do is focus on the types of inflation that the Fed would respond to. Things like shelter prices, for example, or broad-based inflationary pressures, that's going to be so much more important. That's why we ended up with, you know, 5% CPI and at the exact same time, a 10-year near near 1.3 or even 1.5 seems like it's disjointed. It's not. It's about the type of inflation, not the total inflation. People want to get the market call right as well, Francis. So let's spend some time on that. That's the economics debate. Fold it into the markets for us. Treasuries, you and I have been talking through much of summer. You said repeatedly you think we've seen the highs on a 10-year yield. I imagine you haven't seen any change as far as you're concerned or changed your mind. What's the framework for the bond market that makes you think that way? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I still believe that we've likely seen the peak in this cycle, although we may go back and test it. And a lot of that is going to have to do with what kind of communication we get from the Fed. Powell was pretty darn hawkish last week. He did reiterate that 2022 seemed like it wasn't so far off base from his perspective. But the challenge, from my view, is how do we see a Fed hiking when we're going to see PCE inflation go sub 2% by the end of 22? And we are going to see growth decelerating. And not the least of which is we have this giant fiscal hole at the end of 22 and into 2023, that's a really challenging environment. So right now what we're doing is spending a lot of time decomposing what's moving the 10-year yield. From our view, it's the term premium as opposed to growth and inflation expectations. Really getting a sense of the key drivers is going to be tough. But of course, I think we're probably in this range on that 10-year 1.4 to 1.6. And some days are going to be pretty uncomfortable, just like today and Thursday last week. Can you bleed that over into the equity call in terms of the risk on move? You did say that you do think that supply chain disruption have been priced in. Is that enough to reignite the reflation trade? I don't love the term reflation. Reflation generally means growth and inflation are moving positively. What we do expect is that high that inflation data does start to come in below expectations and growth can now start to surprise to the upside that typically looks goldilocks but is it full throttle pedal to the metal absolutely not we still have a lot of these underlying challenges so sometimes i use the term goldilocks and the three bears which essentially means you can be overweight equities but really be conscious of the fact that you want to be defensively positioned you maybe want to have barbell portfolio with some value in there and just make sure you're ready for it in the event of, again, not base case, but escalator up, elevator down. I think we all need a plan for that, especially as we get closer into 2022. How are you preparing for that? Oh, there's a range of ways to doing that, but just understanding your triggers, where you're going to go through, watching that Fed speak really closely, watching supply chains, and of course, watching China. Those are the three main macro factors that are going to really be the make or break on whether we can continue more of that Goldilocks narrative or whether we do have to prepare for something that's a little bit more uncomfortable, more of a stagnation, which is a really kind of slowing in growth and slowing in inflation that's not expected. Do you have an entrenched terminal vector to potential GDP? Do you have an arrow sliding down over quarters and quarters and years and years to the vicinity of 2.0%? It's actually, Tom, really darn close. 1.9% is where we have growth coming out in 2026. Long way to get there. A lot can change. But what's been so disappointing is throughout COVID, we really did expect or we were hoping for game-changing fiscal that would persist over an extended period of time. Average inflation targeting really taking hold and a lot of productivity growth. And all those things combined were supposed to lift that long-term GDP, but it just hasn't happened to the same extent that it could have. So unfortunately, I don't even get to 2% in 2026, one9 is my peak right now. Francis, just finally, Chairman Powell talking a little bit later this morning with Secretary Yellen. The chairman getting a lot of attention about what's happening with Rosengren and what's happened with Kaplan. I won't ask you to weigh in on the politics of the moment. I do want your understanding as things stand on what you expect next year, the composition of this Federal Reserve. Are you expecting big changes, changes at all? No. And, you know, with the regional bank presidents, we're probably going to see those dots mimicked one to the next. I think that even the Hawks are going to have to pivot in 2022 as they start to realize that a hike in 2022 is going to be really problematic here. So regardless of the composition, whoever's in the role, I think the data is going to speak for itself. And you are going to see a bit of a pivot around Q2 of next year.
Francis, just uh, just to finish up here, I'm wondering what you think the ramifications will be of some of the turmoil that we've seen on the FOMC, the idea that there are six seats of officials that will be potentially appointed in the upcoming year. How much does this shift the Fed from doves becoming uber dovish without even more hawkish members? It's really challenging, Lisa. We don't even know who's going to be at the helm of the Fed. And yeah, there is a little bit of psychology that goes into guessing whose dot is who and what is the general type of mood at the FOMC. So when you have that level of uncertainty, A, acknowledge it. That's a risk management tool that you should be doing. But B, recognize and really try to pivot or, or pillar yourself to what the data will show you. And our expectation is that the deceleration in growth and inflation will mean that even the most hardened of hawks, no matter who they are, is going to have to recognize it's really challenging to start tightening aggressively in 2022. Francis, thank you. As always, Francis Donald there, Manulife Investment Management, Global Chief Economist. To look at the extractive process and say, what's the future look like? We do that now with Colombia. And Diego Puyo joins us, their energy and mines minister, and of course, with his tour of duty at the International Monetary Fund as well. We don't do this enough. When you look at the media talking about the extractive process of mining or even oil, what do we get wrong about the challenges you face? in making supply happen? I think uh, in, the, in, in the extractive industry sector, uh, we need to make sure that we have uh, more stability, obviously, on, on the price side. Uh, and, and that's difficult because obviously it's uh, determined by the market forces. So I think, you know, it's understanding how the production levels will change once we have those swings in prices, either <clears throat> upside or, or downward. I think that could be one of the things that, you know, is difficult to obviously forecast and understand uh, the response from the real sector. You bring prodigious academics to this, unlike many others in extractive mining. Do you call a commodity super cycle now after years of disinflation? and outright price deflation is a time that we have turned and we're moving higher? Well, it's looked like we're going in that direction, uh, not only with oil, as we saw yesterday, Brent, uh, for the first time, uh, for which is the Columbia reference, has crossed $80 per barrel. Uh, we've seen that with natural gas, obviously, in Asia and uh, European markets. And we're seeing that with coal as well, which has recovered more than 70 75% in the last uh, 12 months. Well, how do you support your home industry, which is coal, with one of the biggest uh, mines out there, while also remaining on the right side of the debate over global warming, on the right side of all of the development in terms of what's next for energy production going forward? Well, uh, Lisa, we, we know that we need to be more competitive because uh, the demand for coal, for thermal coal, has been shifting toward the east. Uh, and we need to make sure that our companies are competitive in that market. So we've been helping those companies enter the Asian market. Uh, some companies have done it very well, like, for example, Drummond uh, and Serehon, obviously. Uh, and now I think with Serehon, uh, you obviously know that... Uh, Glencore announced the uh, buying the stakes of Anglo American and BHP a couple of months ago. So I think that's a very good sign that they will continue uh, to mine uh, all of the assets in Serehan in the medium term. And, and you know, Colombia obviously would like to see the coal sector to continue to thrive as, as done it over the last uh, three decades. Well, how do you get a foothold though in the new industries, right? The new energies. And I'm thinking of natural gas in particular, which is surging both in demand and in price. 
So we've been doing efforts to award new EMP blocks. Uh, we had an, a problem in Colombia because when we came into power in 2018, the country had gone through a period of five years without signing new EMP contracts. So we cleared some bottlenecks on the contractual side. And in these three years, we've signed now more than 35 EMP contracts. And we have a new round taking place this year, which will be awarding contracts by the end of the of the year. So uh, we're focusing also obviously on gas prone basins offshore, uh, but also in the Median Valley uh, in onshore basins that are mature in Colombia and are well known for its uh, gas prone. Is the mine mechanized or does it employ so many people? It's a domestic labor issue for Colombia. Uh, it, even though it's not labor intensive, it is the main employer in the two provinces where we have Like uh, how many mines. people roughly? About 10,000 people. You get 10,000 people strapped to coal. You have, as Lisa mentioned, a global mandate to reduce coal. How do you juxtapose that? I mean, five years out to you, forget about the limousines outside the UN or at, I mean, you and I have done IMF World Bank 47 times. Forget about the suits and ties. How do you juxtapose that out five or 10 years as we're asking China to diminish coal? So, Tom, that's a very good question. And our main public policy in the sector has been energy transition. Colombia has world-class resources, both wind and solar. And it happens to be that the highest potential is exactly where the coal mines are, which is the northern part of the country. So we've done auctions. We've created a fiscal framework to attract investment into uh, this uh, variable or unconventional renewable energy sources. And we're going in 2018 from less than 0.2% of our power matrix made up of renewables to about 12% in 2022. And we see a significant opportunity for workers mm -hmm. in these regions to move and have not only a just, but a well-managed transition over time to uh, variable renewable energy. Diego, we're talking about the potential for energy crises across the world. We see energy shortages, certainly in the United Kingdom. Uh, there's a potential for one in China. How do you avoid something similar happening in a place like Colombia from your standpoint? So we need to make sure that we exploit our natural resources very well. So Colombia uh, is, has a comparative advantage because right now uh, our power matrix depends largely on hydropower. We have significant hydro resources. So what we're doing is we're complementing those resources with wind and solar and obviously having you know about 20% or so of natural gas and coal uh, power uh, base load that we so we, we can complement the intermittency mm -hmm. on water, wind, and sun. So our matrix is looking quite good. It's going to be better once we finish this, uh, you know, yeah. ramp up in energy transition process. Let's get to the most important extractive commodity of Colombia. What do you can do about the price of a cup of coffee? <laughs> Help us here, you know. And, and that's something that at, uh, it's under the agriculture ministry, but I think we're very happy. <laughs> but you're here, so we're asking you. <laughs> but but, but my, my answer there would be, you know, we're, we're very happy to see uh, strong prices for coffee. Are we? <laughs> In Colombia, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and I think the, the demand for coffee maybe is more inelastic than what we think. Are we? Really? Thank you. <laughs> no Killing it here with the IMF analysis. Anything else you'd like to add? <laughs> no, I think uh, I, I would like to add, you know, the energy transition process that we've been uh, doing yeah. in Colombia has a couple of very uh, significant milestones that are taking place right now. So on Thursday, we'll be launching with President Duque the hydrogen roadmap. Colombia has significant potential to produce both green and blue hydrogen. And we also awarded uh, two months ago the first auction in Latin America for large-scale storage 
with batteries. See how he did this, Lisa? He got right back on <laughs> yeah. script. Well, he didn't, he didn't even blink <laughs> My youngest daughter's popping $8 a cup of something at Starbucks, and it's just killing <laughs> uh, me. Yeah, just your daughter. Diego, thank you so All much. Minister Pio <laughs> with us from Columbia. Right now, Francisco Blanche of Bank of America, Global Commodities and Derivatives Research Head. We at Bloomberg want to bring you all we can on hydrocarbons. Francine Lacroix earlier this morning with Jeffrey Curry, and now at $100 a barrel, Francisco Blanche. Francisco, I want to channel the research of Caldera Cavallo and Iacoviello at the Fed in their landmark piece five years ago on the elasticities of oil. Adam Siminski talked about this years ago at Deutsche Bank. How tight is the oil market so that when demand shifts, the price explodes? Well, so so uh, there's different ways to look at this, but uh, generally, we uh, uh, for for every every um, million barrel a day swing in supplier demand, unexpected, uh, we look at typically about a twenty dollar move in prices. And again, there's many ways you can run this calculation, but but think about it: one percent move in demand or supply, unexpected, leads to a twenty dollar price move. That that's that's the issue here, um, and and we are probably seeing more extreme moves in natural gas because of the reduction of that price elasticity, that linkage right. between gas and coal is now leading to even uh, sharper moves on, on that front. So clearly hydrocarbons are, are in a tight spot from a, from a supply and demand elasticity uh, from the response right. of, of, of both supply and demand to rising prices. John, you know the rule of thumb, don't mention elasticity on air, it confuses people, but that's Sorry. the heart <laughs> of the matter right now. It's the ugly math of elasticities and we're seeing it to $100. TK, let's not bury the lead. Let's go straight to that yep. forecast at Bank of America. It's $100 crude, triple digit crude, Francisco, by the middle of next year. Now, help us right. understand the path to 100 and help us understand why you think we might get there sooner. Well, so the path, the path to 100 is basically uh, being driven by um, tightening supply demand conditions. Um, we are seeing demand coming back. Um, it, it's coming back from a mobility standpoint, but it's also coming back with, with natural gas prices rising so fast and creating substitution back into oil. And, um, and, and that's, the, that's at the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that we're going to be over... Um, the 2019 demand levels uh, sometime next summer, or maybe this winter if the weather turns particularly cold. Um, so we are we are concerned about that because we have a lot less capacity. Remember, shale oil production is way lower than it was back in uh, at the peak of the uh, of the cycle in in shale in early 2020, and uh, and and frankly, we've seen uh, severe underinvestment in the last 18 months. Um, and I'm not sure that underinvestment can be easily corrected because now we're moving into a green economy. And uh, guess what? I mean, if, if, if your time horizon is three, four, five years to recover your money, yeah. you just need a higher price. And, uh, and I think a lot of companies are reluctant to make the investment because of what they're hearing from governments and investors. And this is so, so important. Typically, Francisco, we would say the cure for higher prices is higher right. prices. Jeff Curry right. of Goldman a peer of yours, this morning speaking to Francine Lacroix, saying this is the revenge of the old economy. It's the underinvestment that you describe of the last several years that is starting to bite. And I think what you're getting at here is really important. Francisco, how long we might have to live with this? Could this be years of this? 
it, it could potentially, and, and, and we are moving into, I mean, the thing is, we, remember, we are moving into a straight jacket here for energy. We don't want to use coal. We want to use less and less gas. Um, we want to move away from oil. So, so uh, this policy ultimately is, is going to create uh, deeper and deeper underinvestment. And, uh, and, and the issue is we can't sort out all these things at once. And if, if the weather turns against us, and, and it has so far this year, we've had low hydro in China, we've had low wind in Europe. Um, now, now, if we have a cold winter on top of it, uh, things are going to get complicated uh, because we are depending more and more on renewable sources. Um, and we don't have the industrial scale batteries required to, um, to store that energy throughout the year. So, so I think that's where the challenge is, um, so in, in my view. So, so yes, it could be a multi-year period until we finally transition to a green economy where, where things are, are calmer. Francisco, this backdrop is uh, bullish for oil prices, and we've already blown through some of your forecasts for uh, right. September when it comes to Brent. I mean, how much are you bringing forward the idea of triple-digit uh, oil prices? Right. So, so we've been saying it was going to be a summer 2022 when global air traffic recovered. And remember, at the end of the day, the biggest gap in global demand has come from, from the airline industry. We've shut down most of airline travel. Uh, but now the U.S. is restarting travel in November, right? You're going to be able to travel into the U.S. from all around the world if you're vaccinated. At least that's what the guidance seems to be. So um, we're going to see a resumption in international travel. Demand for jet fuel is going to pick up. At the same time, we're going into winter, and we don't have enough gas to keep uh, the world warm. And, 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 and that's going to lead to a surge in demand. So it could potentially happen sooner, the $100 oil. And I think, I think that's where the winter premium plays a big role here. So how high could oil prices go? I mean, if we're talking about $100 barrels uh, by September next year at the latest, based on the current dynamics, could we get to 110? Could we get to 150? Well, I mean, I don't want to create necessarily uh, headlines without writing them before, because otherwise I get into trouble with, with our, our <laughs> compliance officers. But, um, you know, I, I have to tell you, I mean, this seems to be increasingly a, a, a multi-year problem because companies are reluctant to invest until higher prices yeah. um, come about. And, and even if prices come about, they still don't know what COP26 is going to look like. Uh, my sense is once we get through COP26, we'll have a clear picture of what it's going to take right. to resolve the problem. Um, <clears throat> but the Climate Summit will provide a lot of guidance to investors and, and governments and companies alike as, as to right. what, what they need to do here. Francisco, very quickly here, we're out of time. Do you anticipate $100 like we saw 110 average for four years? Um, I, I don't at the moment. Uh, I think it's it, it's a squeeze. Uh, we've been factoring in more electric vehicles, uh, a transition away from, from hydrocarbons. Um, but, but again, we have an underinvestment problem that we can't solve easily. And at the same time, uh, we have surging demand because we keep printing all this money. And, and my concern is prices for oil and, and other commodities spike. And what are we going to do? Are we going to say this is transitionary and we're going to keep feeding more money and, and uh, increasing our debts, uh, our government debts to, to uh, cure the problem, that's definitely not going to help our, our um, transitory inflation uh, story. I think it could make it more entrenched, but I'll, I'll leave it there. But I mean, I, you know, I think at the moment it looks transitory, but, but I think it becomes more permanent if, um, if we use the same tools we have fiscal and monetary to address what's essentially an undersupply problem right now. Interesting. Francisco, we could go all day, all morning. It's great to Thank catch you. up. Francisco Blanche there, Bank of America. Two of the best on Wall Street this morning. Jeff Curry and Francisco <clears throat> Blanche commenting yeah. on this crude market. 
Sarah Malik joins us, Nuveen Global Equity CIO. Far too optimistic to be on uh, this show. State the bull case where this swoon, as you call it, is an opportunity. The bull case is around earnings growth for next year, which we think can be in the high single digits. But the concern today is whether yields are moving too far too fast. And the issue is that uh, as monetary policy becomes contractionary instead of expansionary, how do we get to this growth rate? What we're looking at is a strong consumer, strong manufacturing data. All of that should continue. And really what we're seeing here is growth is just being postponed. It's not evaporating in the third year of a bull market post the deep recession. We can see that strong earnings growth. It's going to come from the top line and pricing power because margins are at about decade high. So companies with pricing power who can overcome inflation right. should show that earnings growth going so forward. So revenues will outstrip any margin erosion. That's our view. And we're looking for those companies with the pricing power. So let's talk about Nike here, where it really was a supply issue on the guide down. They have a lot of brand heat. Demand has never been healthier for Nike. You can wear Nikes anywhere. I'm actually wearing a pair right now. Uh, as we as we do this video, well, what is this, an um, also, <laughs> <laughs> Gary on Sarah. Also for Nike, uh, you know they're shifting their margins should increase as they move from whole, wholesale to retail, more direct to consumer business, and the Vietnam factories are opening right now, and they have scale. So when those ports do become less congested, Nike's going to have more power in that area. So we think going forward, actually, they can beat earnings next year. Is that a template, Sarah, for you through this earnings season? Does that story open up some opportunities if we see more Nikes through earnings season? Are they buys for you? I think likely we will see a lot of companies talking about supply chain issues and perhaps missing earnings because of it. Because of it. What we're looking at are those companies which have the power of the reopening behind them and can overcome those supply issues. Another name we like is Simon Property Group. You know, this is an A-mall company here. Malls are not dying. If you look at Simon Property, um, a lot of retailers want an omni-channel business, a combination of brick and mortar and online. Brick and mortar is becoming much more cost effective. And to get that online traffic, you wanna have foot traffic through your brick and mortar. You look at something like Simon Property, it's trading at a discount in the REIT sector because it's a mall. So we think that's another strong play going forward. Banks are bouncing back as well with a steeper yield curve and high yields through the whole of this curve, Sarah. Where do you like the financials right now within the banks themselves. We've talked about this before. Goldman, very different to Bank of America. Take your pick in financials at the moment. What do you like? What kind of business model do you want exposure to? What we like about banks are the yields, but what we don't love about banks are the valuations. We don't think they look particularly cheap. So if you want to play yield on banks, you're exactly right. Look at a Bank of America that's pretty levered to yields. Uh, we like companies more like Morgan Stanley, which has more of a consistent, stable business in wealth management. And then we like our mid-cap bank, Fifth Third, which has more of a strong Southeast uh, regional footprint. Also, they have a strong business model. They're rolling out new products, a lot of cash on the balance sheet so they can really leverage the yields that are going up going forward. As you lean into a reflation type trade, how much does oil at $80 a barrel going up potentially to $100 a barrel challenge the view of, say, airlines, of certain cyclical stocks that might not be able to pass along the cost so easily? We don't love the cyclicals that don't have pricing power. So exactly that. We're not looking at maybe what are lower quality or highly cyclical companies at this point. Energy is going to be an issue. You have to have that pricing power and demand in place. So airlines are not necessarily a favorite for us. We would play companies related to airlines like Boeing, which has the leverage because they're supplying to airline companies, but less volatile and less cyclical than a pure airline. 
So today we're going to hear from Jerome Powell. We already heard uh, from Christine Lagarde of the ECB talking about the transitory supply chain disruptions, the transitory inflation inputs. How transitory, based on the ground level view of corporate balance sheets, do you expect the supply chain disruptions to be? You know, we don't think we're at the peak of inflation at this point. It will be mostly transitory, but there's going to be some permanence going forward, especially in larger pieces of inflation like wage inflation. So, you know, going forward, maybe inflation is more in the two to three percent range. The question is, how hot is that for the Fed? Powell does tend to lean dovish. So we're on the side that the Fed does not make an error here. Our view is even that interest rates may not increase as quickly right. as the market is thinking with the moderate growth that we expect next year. Sarah, I've been going back and forth with Doug Cass all morning. I mean, we're not in speaking terms because the Yankees are crushing the Red Sox, but Cass is all bent out of shape about buy, yeah, or buybacks and, and all that. What's use of cash going to do given this maelstrom? I mean, it's interesting because you've seen really high levels of buybacks this year, and this kind of tells you that companies are not confident enough right now to spend on CapEx. Buybacks tend to be more flexible. However, we think that will likely peak going forward. We're seeing low inventory levels. Our view is that companies could shift more capital expenditure going forward and pull back on buybacks. So you know, maybe buybacks continue and peak around the end of this year, and then we switch to more of a CapEx-based model as companies become more confident as the Delta variant moves behind us. Sarah, I missed you last time. It's been too long. It's good to see you and great to catch up. Good Sarah Malik you. there. Thank you. Nuveen Global Equity CIO. Dan Clifton always writes with a real sense of American political history. His latest note is simply a jewel. He's a strategist research, head of policy research. Dan, I love, love, love what you do about the ascent of the Tea Party 12, 13 years ago. And in November, a decade ago, basically the Tea Party collapsed. How do you bring that forward to the Democrats of 2021? Absolutely. First, thank you for having me. This is a very big week in Washington. We're calling it Field of Dreams Week as Speaker Pelosi tries to build legislation and hopefully the votes will come. As you know, the progressive Democrats have been pushing for a ironclad commitment on a $3.5 trillion spending package. And if they get that, they would agree to an infrastructure package that was negotiated on a bipartisan basis. We are nowhere near a $3.5 trillion deal. And so Speaker Pelosi made a very big shift last night and said, I am going to de-link the infrastructure bill from the $3.5 trillion spending package. Let's take the win on infrastructure. And now we're going to have a test of whether the progressive Democrats are the equivalent of the Tea Party in 2011 and 2012. Tom, as you remember, in the week before the fiscal cliff of 2012, the Tea Party took down a bipartisan negotiated agreement on the fiscal cliff in direct opposition to what Speaker Baker right. wanted to get. And as a result, they ended up with a much worse deal and eventually the collapse. So this is a very big test for the progressives here. Pelosi is challenging okay. them. And ultimately, I believe an infrastructure bill will pass this week. Dan, are they whippable? Are they so intransigent that I can't even pronounce it correctly. I don't have a fancy degree like Clifton. But are they whippable? Uh, it's a great word, and uh, I do think they are whippable. They are whippable if the president of the United States picks up the phone, even goes to their lunch this week, and says, I need your vote. The president is in quicksand here. He's got higher inflation. He's got COVID issues where he's underwater with the voters. He has the Afghanistan on foreign policy. 
He needs a domestic policy win. He needs to put it out there. There's two points of pressure. Number one, I need you for this win. The momentum will get us to a larger spending package down the road. And second, the highway trust fund will completely expire on October 1st. We don't want those jobs to go away. So I need your vote. But it's not a one-way street, Tom. He's going to have to go to Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema and say, I need something bigger on the $3.5 trillion spending package so I can go back to the progressives with something. Dan, Ultimately, I believe that that's going to work. But this is as high stakes as I've seen it when you can only lose three votes in the House of Representatives. Dan, you said that you do believe that an infrastructure plan will pass. I assume this is the bipartisan infrastructure bill that will pass this week. Where does that leave the debt ceiling debate, the potential government shutdown, if at all? Does it help move the needle in that direction? Great question. Completely separate, but everything is connected in Washington. Last night, we had a vote in the United States Senate to continue that government funding and to lift the debt ceiling. As you know, that vote failed. And so we're beginning the step process of where we're going on this. My guess is that the Democrats in the Senate are going to remove the debt ceiling, pass a continuing budget resolution, and that will ultimately pass the House of Representatives. Then we're going to have to figure out what we're going to do with the debt ceiling. And I do think the Democrats are starting to come to the realization that they're going to have to do it alone through the budget reconciliation process. And it's going to take about two weeks for them to get there. So this is a, for me, I'm much more worried about the debt ceiling resolution. You're already seeing short-term interest rates in the one-month market really starting to bid up here as investors are worried about getting paid for. That's going to have a far bigger impact on financial markets than the infrastructure. But Lisa, think about the question you just had. Think about all the bandwidth. Each one of these are very difficult. And we're trying to do four of them at one time in a very short time frame with limited majorities in both the Senate and the House. This is as high stakes as I've ever seen it. What's the historical analog to the potential for the United States to default here? I mean, is it 2011 or is this unprecedented in the potential here for an error? Yeah, so we've been calling this a September to remember because it reminds us a lot of September 2013. Do you remember in September of 2013, the Fed was trying to taper, Bernanke's replacement was on the table. You had a government shutdown. We had to raise the debt ceiling and the ACA exchanges were coming online. That's very similar to what we are today. And ultimately, Lisa, we had a government shutdown. That made it easier to raise the debt ceiling because once we got into a shutdown, we had to reopen the government and then we attached the debt ceiling to it. So there is an analogy there. In 2011, which I think is another good analogy, that was the Republican Tea Party challenging on the debt ceiling. Today, it's a little bit different because you have one party government. And usually when you have one party government, that party raises the debt ceiling by themselves. And there's ways to do it. It's just we're going to need the pressure to get policymakers to act. And that's why I think you're going to see some strain and some volatility in the short-term credit markets until we get that resolution. One party just government like made up of about three different parties. Dan, that's the issue, isn't it? Two-party government in name only, really, two-party D.C. There's about five different ones, Dan, that are trying to agree on something. Isn't that the myth here down in Washington? It's always been true to some degree that there are only two parties in Washington. That's exactly right. And, you know, our presentation into the presidential election was there's really four political parties. You have your establishment Republicans, establishment Democrats, and then your progressives and your Trump uh, Republicans. And for the Republicans, they've just been much more advanced over the last couple of years. Now you're seeing that fourth party really develop on the Democratic side. And I think the key question is, 
Speaker Pelosi is the best whip that I've ever seen in my lifetime. She knows where to get the vote. She knows exactly how to apply the pressure. But Jonathan, she's a lame duck speaker. And do the progressives seize that as an opportunity, try and burn the House down until they get what they want. My guess is that they're going to not let perfect be the enemy of the good. They're going to wind up moving the ball forward. But it's going to take a lot of work from Pelosi and Biden to get there. And then ultimately, I think there's a lot of work getting done behind the scenes to get some sort of reconciliation package through somewhere in the range of $2 trillion that's going to have a meaningful increase in healthcare and renewable yeah. energy spending. So not everything you want, but that's Washington. And you're going to have to accept that compromise, just like the Democrats did with Obamacare in 2010. So we're really seeing those divisions play out. It's not easy to watch the legislation be made. But I do think that we're starting to see how this how this program is going to develop and the Democrats are starting to get their game plan in place. Hey, Dan, don't be a stranger. It's good to catch up. Dan Clifton there. Fired Let's up. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.